and welcome to a new episode of Talking Law from Women in the Law UK. I'm Sally Penny, MBE, a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester, and I'm the founder of Women in the Law UK and the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers. Do please support the series of Talking Law books, which are available on Amazon, with profits going to charity. The latest book, Talking Law 3, celebrates diversity in the law, and you can also find other books from me, Sally Penny, on employment rights, data protection and cybercrime, as well as criminal law and vulnerable people. If you're looking for some great resources for anyone working within the law, please do visit womeninthelawuk.com. Today, I'm interviewing a man who knew he wanted to be a barrister from age eight, Bernard Richmond QC. Called in 1988, Bernard is now the head of chambers at Lamb Building and is an active member of Middle Temple, where he became a bencher in 2005. He has also been an honorary professor of law at University of Kent since 2020. There was so much to discuss with Bernard, but I started by asking more about where the aspiration to work in the law came from. It came from watching Crown Court on television during days when I was allowed not to go to school because I was feeling unwell or during holidays. <laughs> so the it was on ITV at 1.30 and I watched it, didn't really understand a lot of it because I was only in my sort of eighth or ninth year but was really taken by the whole theatre of it and the subject matter and the idea that people had stories to tell. And that's really what attracted me. And then as I got older, I was interested in the process because I've always been interested in the way that the state relates to people. And that's always helped me decide what sort of courses I want to do for exams and things like that. And also because of where I come from. And where is that? Come from East London, Upton Park. So near Stratford. So when I yes. grew up in that area, not many people were going off to university. Many people were getting involved with the law in the consumer end or the having things done to them end. And they <laughs> seemed always to have a bit of a raw deal. So I was quite interested in helping people to tell their story, really. Absolutely. And did you know anybody who was in the law? No. Did you come from a family of lawyers no. or anything like oh, that? No, no, no. I'm the, I was the first in my family to go to higher education and the first really to go into one of the professions. And my dad's, my dad was a school caretaker when he retired. My mum, a typist in the local area. So no, nobody had any sort of inspiration to give from that way. But, but what they did do was encourage me to aspire, which was often a problem for a lot of kids in the area I grew up where the aspiration really was to get through school, get a job, get an apprenticeship, earn a living, perfectly proper aspiration. But there were fewer people wanting to do the university higher education route. That's so interesting because you, of course, have given back to the profession. You're not literally a silk who's become a QC and uh, is just enjoying the fees, sitting in your tower and looking down. You teach advocacy, uh, you teach um 
pupil supervisors as they are now. They were called pupil masters in my day. Like yeah. myself, you trained me. I'm sure you've trained so many of us who become pupil masters. It, you probably don't remember. And you're involved in scholarship interviews. And you're very involved in your in Middle Temple. So you are actually somebody who's giving back to the profession. And it's wonderful to see, if I may say so. Where did that desire come from? to actually be more than just the brilliant advocate in court? The, well, I don't accept the first proposition that I'm a brilliant advocate in court, but thanks for, the, <laughs> thanks for the comment. I think where it started from really was that when I was a pupil, I was pretty short of money and I managed to get a pupillage award from Middle Temple, which saved my bacon, really. I was the first recipient of an award called the State School Award which was for someone who came from the state school sector and was only open to them. I remember getting that and very proudly having that badge. But at the time, which was in the late 80s, it was £2,500, which was an enormous amount of money. And it really kept me going. And I thought I would try and repay that. I also remember thinking at the time that 10 years from now, which had been 1998, I wouldn't be such an unusual type of person to be in the profession it would be a much broader wider group of people and that part of what I could do would be to pay back by encouraging and supporting people who wanted to join the profession because you've got two types of people often haven't you got those who achieve something and then what they seem to do is to try and pull the ladder up behind them and then the other sort and the sort of people I naturally gravitate towards who want to throw the ladder down and help as many people as need to come up it do so absolutely because how long have you been at the bar uh this is <laughs> <laughs> 32nd year oh my god now I, was, I was a mere boy when i started um, <laughs> <laughs> well in that long spanning um career i wonder if you've got a memorable case that's meant something to you or a case that sticks to your mind of course baby p is memorable because i got such a kicking for the way that I questioned the child in that case. In many ways, there were so many ways that you could justify what had happened. And I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to try and learn from that. And I'm very involved now in, in training people how to question vulnerable witnesses. But I suppose that was an important case because it marked a very substantial sea change in the way we treat vulnerable witnesses. So yes. that, was, that was important for that reason. I think the case that most sticks in my mind is probably Mrs. Farrelly, which was my first ever Crown Court trial, because I was so young and so inexperienced. Uh, and I remember her seeing me in the lobby and turning to her husband and saying, good grief, they've sent me an effing boy to do a man's job. <laughs> and, being, and being completely overwhelmed. Uh, we were, and I was in front of a fantastic guy called Len Woodley who was one of the very earliest um, BAME silks, mm. this head of chamber, wow. and really inspirationally helpful during that trial. So it was a very weird experience. I was doing my very first Crown Court trial. I had a client who didn't seem to like me very much. I had a judge who didn't look like any judge I'd seen before. Yes. Who was much more pro-defence than I'd ever heard a judge be in some of the comments that he made. 
Um, <laughs> and it was quite a nice way to start, really. So I remember that. And I remember that really for him and his kindness, I think, probably. Quite. Now, Bernard, I've asked you already a bit about your background and why you came to the bar. And I'm very keen for people to know that the bar is open to all. But I wonder, what do you think about diversity? I am a black woman and I don't see many of me on my circuit. I see more um, in London, the southeastern circuit where you are. Uh, and but just ethnic diversity, gender and social mobility. You know, we are improving, aren't we, at the bar in the profession? But do you think we could do more? And if so, what else could we do? And I mean, for example, what's your chambers doing? Because Land Buildings has actually been doing some of this stuff for years. We're, we're very mixed in the membership that we have. And we've been yeah. very lucky to attract people from very different backgrounds into chambers. And that's been mm. one of the joys of being in that building. And that's why most of us who are there stay there, really, because it's a community of people yes. who come from very, very different and diverse backgrounds. And I think that makes for a much stronger, a much stronger place. But I think we kid, we, we kid ourselves if we think that we are a diverse profession. Because what we do is that we are working really hard to encourage people, but into a profession where, sadly, because of the way things are, the perception still is that you need to have private money or have gone to the right school or come from the right social background and that it's not very supportive of people who come from different sort of backgrounds or people who are living with disability or people who are perhaps older and have done other things with their lives. Whereas, in fact, there are really substantial pockets of people who are really supportive and trying to encourage those people to come and, and join what we're doing. Um, and, and the outreach work that the inns, for example, and some of the associations are doing is, is really yeah. great. But unfortunately... If we're trying to get to people at the stage they're at university, it's too late. Because one of the problems is you've got to want people to aspire to a profession. And, of course, one of the problems for people who come from certain communities is that that aspiration is either thwarted or it's not encouraged. So people don't see themselves as able to, to aspire. And that's why I think it's really important that we're doing much more work in schools I think we should be trying to promote education programs so that things can go into schools. We can tell people what's happening, what the profession's involved. I'm really keen on the idea that there ought to be a module on rights and responsibilities in the school curriculum. Um, I'm yes. really keen to try and encourage that. So that's my next little project. Now I've stopped being chair of education at Middle Temple. I think that <laughs> I think that's what we do. We should see the right to speak and have your voice heard in court as a right not a privilege and that being able to assist someone with that is a noble calling but bear in mind of course we are an elite in the sense that a lot of what we do a lot of people can't do so many yeah. people say i couldn't do your job and that's the same for lots of other jobs there's lots of jobs i couldn't do and so the question is we've got to encourage the brightest and the best but we have to be able to define what the brightest and the best means. And I don't think, for example, it means how great your A-levels are. 
it's a very, very good point. But it's not a new point, that, is it? I'd never say anything novel, Sally. Oh, no, no, it's a wonderful, a wonderful point. But I just mean that, you know, it, it, I agree with you. But it's a shame that even now we're not quite there. We're realising that. But what is different now, which I think is really exciting, is the number of projects that are growing up, which are trying to encourage and bring people in. So years ago, we had the Citizenship Foundation, and that really good work. But it was very much the only project. But now we've got so many other things, haven't we, that are yeah. projects for different types of people, different types of community. We have to be careful that we don't tread on each other's toes, I think, and, and duplicate effort. But there are, yeah. there are amazing, there are some amazing projects out there. Absolutely, absolutely. And certainly the criminal bar, um, social mobility uh, and culture and all the culture trust, all of those are great projects. Um, Bernard, I, I want to ask you about the present. COVID has created an addition to the already existing backlog in the criminal mm, courts. Mm. I'm very worried about what that will do, not just for diversity, but actually for practitioners who have been, you know, at the job for some time in terms of retention. And I wondered really if you can see some positives out of COVID, um, perhaps, you know, using the CVP system for what it is, the computer system means there's no travel. Um, Except, you know, of course, we've got judges who keep insisting that people turn up to court when yes. they don't have to. So it's really difficult, isn't it? Because I think one of the problems that we've got, particularly for the publicly funded bar, yes, is that there really needs to be a sea change in attitude to the way we do business. So there needs to be a much reduced need to keep dragging people backwards and forwards to court for administrative yeah. hearings, these sort of things can be done over the internet and should be done over the internet. And in fact, some of the courts, like I'm very lucky that I practice quite a lot at the Old Bailey. The Old Bailey is really yeah. good at doing things over whatever they use now, CVP. CVP or Teams. Yeah, so you save a lot of time. And I sit as a coroner and we are doing everything over Teams and it's working perfectly well. So I think that's... I think that's important. I think we have to rethink the way that we ask people to use their time. That's good to know, and I, and I do ag agree with you. Um, I wonder, I always ask this question, you've already mentioned Crown Court, but um, who is your favourite fictional lawyer, if you've got one? And have you got a favourite book? Right. I've got to change my fictional lawyer, otherwise I'll get killed. Um, <laughs> I would say that it's always been Rumpole. Yes. It's always been Rumpole, but... But one of my friends in Silk playing Caroline Wheeler, the, the alcoholic prosecutor, Francis Barber. Oh, she yes. did a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous job. And so if I don't say she's my favourite lawyer, she'll never forgive me. So I think <laughs> she and Rumpole are the two. I'm afraid as far as books are concerned, I just change all the time. So I'm afraid I don't really have a favourite. It tends to be whatever I'm reading at the moment. Um, the book which really moves me a lot is a book called Like Water for Chocolate, which is mm. a beautiful book, um, very, very short book, but it's absolutely beautiful. It was made into a film. So I like, I like books which stir up a bit of emotion and make me think, really. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, I love that. Well, we've got a book club, you see, so we're always looking for books to read. So I should add add that um, to it. Uh, and Bernard, with the amount of work work that you're doing in court and outside of court, what do you do for well-being? How do you look after yourself? I know you're married, uh, but what do you do to relax? You know, but the burnout rate of the bar, sadly, is high. Um, and, you know, we work long hours uh, and we probably don't get enough sleep. Mm. We probably mm. drink too much coffee. Mm. So I just wondered, what, what do you do to look after yourself and regain that mental sharpness? Trash television. <laughs> you know, it's Tuesday, it's, Hol- it's Holby night. So Hollyoaks and Holby night. <laughs> and do you manage to follow the stories? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I should tell Courtney Griffith QC, who's been on this podcast, because his son was in Holby for a short time. Okay. Yeah, so I, I will uh, share that. Trash television. I love that. Now, um, I want to go back to the question I asked at the beginning about Twitter and the brilliant work you've been doing through lockdown, actually, to put on workshops, uh, advocacy workshops, and generally encouraging people to come to the, to the profession. But where did your love of Twitter come from? Because you're very comfortable using it, aren't you? Do you know what? I, don't, I went on once just to see what it was about. Uh, and I had to create a handle. So I created yeah. Fat Silk. Um, which arose out of a criminal case where there were these various um, labels that each of the the kids had given people. And so we had a glossary explaining what they were, so what fat was and what moist was and everything else. And so instead of being fat with an F, I thought I'd I'd do that. And I didn't put my name. So originally it was just fat silk, so I was like a bit embarrassed eating. But then someone in my chamber said, well, you can't really do that and make serious comments and not let people who's doing it, let people know who's doing it. So I, I added my name and I, I had certain thoughts about what I was doing on there. Mostly what I was doing, I thought, was just having a natter with people. So that's how it started. I didn't take it seriously at all. And then it occurred to me that people were actually being quite horrible to each other. Um, and I, I think I, I'm proud and I think I'm being fair to myself to say that I don't tend to be horrible to people and I don't have arguments. Yeah. Uh, I don't talk about cases that I'm involved in. Um, yeah. I hate this, personally hate this thing where you say, oh, Bernard Richmond secured an acquittal, thank you, blogs and co for instructing me. Because I think the other yes. side of that is you just say Bernard Richmond crashes and burns and poor client goes to prison, please never brief him again. But you never see that. Um, and then it, it became a way of communicating with people. There was there was a time a couple of years ago where I bit the bullet and raised the profile of mental health issues at the bar, which was quite a scary thing to do, but was very well received. And then during lockdown, I thought a lot of people on Twitter seemed to be very bored and fed up. So I'll do a couple of Zoom classes and that then spiked into zoom school and i think now i've done something like 240 hours of classes so it's been wow a lot we've got a gang of a gang of people who help teach it and we're currently doing a case club so like a book club but for a case so we had the first one yesterday and we're doing one next week um and and it's great so uh, i i 
been very blessed, really, because I've met a lot of new people through that who've been wonderful. And the young people are constantly inspiring and also terrifying because they keep you completely on your metal, don't they? But Yes, yes. But I think there's an obligation. As you become a senior member of the profession, you have an obligation. That obligation is legacy. And I think it's it's our job to try and do everything we can to make sure that the profession's in as good a position as it can be by the time we leave it behind. And so to me, that's that's what's important. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you've summarised that so fantastically. Um, really, you're spot on. Um, and I know many of the people who've been on your case clubs who, who love it. And I, I refer loads of people to come onto the Zooms now. You know, whenever I get CVs from young people, I'm saying, follow this chap on Twitter. And they always say, have you spelt his name correctly? And I said, no, it's definitely not a typo no. uh, on there. Uh, but, but Bernard, you've been at the bar for a long time. Have you got any advice uh, for women? You know, we're a women's organisation uh, and men publicly funded bar or otherwise for um remaining at the bar because the attrition rates are still oh, not terrible. brilliant we've, yeah absolutely terrible we've just had middle temple last weekend we've just i just did a class um not a class really a workshop for people who've um, who are returners yes i saw that um yeah. and that's part of the talent retention project which middle temple has has started um, of course, I'm involved with Middle Temple. We don't tend to have the the monopoly on great ideas. A lot of the other in circuits associations doing similar things, but but we started this this talent retention program, and so there've been sort of talks, lectures, classes, workshop, and I was doing the one on advocacy, and the, we had about fifty people come, who Brilliant. who were um, a mix, men and women, people who'd had breaks to raise children people who'd had it because they'd been ill i think people who had done other things and were coming back and i think i think the the thing which each of them shared was an anxiety about whether or not their skills had gone off so i i think what we need to do is to remind people that a lot of the skills which they have are skills which were within them anyway and that actually Getting back out there need not be terrifying. But, of course, what you need is you need to have a set of chambers that is supportive. And if there isn't a supportive environment in chambers, because, for example, it may be that people are spread all over the country working in different places, then we need to have a system of buddying and mentoring and supporting, which makes it easy for people to come back into this profession. Now, for women, I think it's a particular problem. And I think that's a particular problem because... Of course, the the reality is that women have borne the burden very often of, of raising their family in the early years. And so there's that gap when they've stopped practicing and they've got to try and play catch up. And so I'm very interested in how you manage, not I don't manage, but how you help them manage that return so it's as easy as possible. And also that there are early discussions about what their aspirations are so i think as a head of chambers you have to be quite upfront with the clerks and say well look you know this particular person wants to practice in this particular area it might be a bit harder work but we need to try and support that but very often the problem is not is not with the clerks the problem is that in the gap of course solicitors have moved to other people yes and of course there isn't there isn't really 
what used to exist in the in the earlier days when I was practicing a whole body of chambers work you'll know that someone will brief you in chambers and if you're not available then they'll move it to somebody else in another set and so it's very hard to, to create that returns system that used to exist so uh, I think it's really important that that we do that support I think it's also really important that people do not assume knowledge amongst the people who are supposed to be providing support so it, it, it's very you know I'm a, I'm a white guy from um, I'm doing a lovely job that I love I don't have children um, I don't actually know a number of the experiences and struggles that people are living through and you can't assume that I do know and sometimes it's very easy to trip up over yourself trying not to say you're so worried about not doing the wrong thing that doing the right thing becomes almost too difficult to do as well. So I think we need to have an open atmosphere in which people say, well, this is what this is what we need. Let me help you in you know, finding the skills to help me. Yeah, no, no, spot on. But I suppose the difference is that you've got a desire to learn. And, that, and that's often the best art, isn't it? To find out what are the issues for women and how can we improve, which where sometimes we we don't always have that. People don't always have that desire to find out. They may say they do, but the practicalities of saying, well, Sally, you've got three children and you're managing a practice. What can we do to help you? It's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think little things like if the judge is giving a woman a particularly hard time about getting to court and, and you know, not having these ridiculously early hours and stuff like that, then I think as as the head of chambers that sometimes you need to step in and say you're not behaving fairly here here now bernard as an advocacy trainer your name's all over the papers i see it all in the instructions which is great you've written so many so i'm going to come to you for some advocacy tips now oh god what are your... <laughs> i know i know but but i'm very i'm very interested and they don't have to be you know people who are 20 years cool but it, it could even just be those who are starting out as pupils or the aspiring barristers what are your kind of you know even top three tips to be a good advocate because you've been you know you're very experienced you are silk you you know you teach advocacy uh, and i'm always open to learn more so have you got any top tips for um okay. good advocacy? i think my i think my top tips would be firstly that you should treat advocacy as a toolbox of skills so it's not about i am this sort of advocate or i'm that sort of advocate there are a range of skills which I should try and have in my toolbox and I should use the right skill at the right time. So it's a lifelong learning process. Yes. So that keeps you fresh and interested. And if you're fresh and interested, it becomes easier to be reflective about your skills. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that you can't deliver any advocacy unless you have a theory of your case and targets. So ultimately, what you've got to do, it seems to me, is you've got to prepare your case and you've got to know what you are actually trying to achieve. The third thing is that ultimately it all boils down to language, language and the desire to communicate. So you have to make sure that your language skills are as good as they can be. 
So those are my three, as it were, introductory top tips. And then for advocacy generally, I suppose the first and most important thing is keep it short, keep it simple and keep it relevant. I love that. I'm going to use that in my skeleton argument for the Court of Appeal. (laughs) Yes, the scariest place on the land. Um, That's so, so spot on. And and thank you for sharing that because it's it's really good to just remember and keep in mind those and what about this bernard um we're in covid there's a lot going on in the profession particularly the criminal bar and the publicly funded bar and i'm just wondering for young people who might be feeling you know low in confidence as imposters you know mental health affecting them um any advice and tips for those entering the profession um to help them carry on, if you like. I think you have to remember that what we are trying to do ultimately is, and it depends whatever area you want to practice, it can be commercial, it can be family, it could be crime or whatever, but we are generally trying to help people who have to navigate a system which can be disempowering, complex and overwhelming. Yeah. And so there is actually real value in what we do. So you can get up in the morning, you can look in the mirror and you can say, there is somebody whose life I will affect today by the work that I do. And that's both a burden in one sense and, a, and an honour and a privilege. And I think if you want to practice something where every morning you get up and you think actually i will make a difference today this sort of work is exactly what you should be doing i think the being given by somebody their trust to ensure that they get their rights or what they're due even if they are wrong i think that is one of the most important things in a civilized society And in fact, I think you judge a civilised society by the way they treat their least civilised people. And very often we have to do that. And you have to be prepared to get a bad time sometimes in other places for doing it. But, But I think that's what I would say if you're doubting yourself. There is a reason why you saw this as your your calling, what you wanted to do. And that ideal, that important motivation, that will never stop. That's always there. The rest of it, yeah, it's difficult and it can make life very depressing. But ultimately, when you cut through all of it, it, there are still those people there, those people who are in need of assistance, be they people who are trying to keep their house or their family or someone who may be about to lose millions and millions of pounds on a commercial deal. They're all there looking for that help. And without us, they will be in a very lonely place where very often those with less honest motivations may take advantage that all sounds very high and grand but i think you have to actually you have to have a high ideal sometimes to keep yourself going Yeah. Um, yeah if you want a more base ideal frankly what else are you good for i'm fit for nothing else frankly (laughs) really i'd love five minutes in a proper job (laughs) 
Now you say that. to this though, which is that I'm talking about advising, representing people. That does not just mean the self-employed bar. So you should not see the self-employed bar as the be all and end all of that, because you know there are solicitors doing equally brilliant work. There are people working in-house, working for the GLS, working for companies, charities, law centres, all doing this sort of work. So I, I think the question very often is finding where you will be most comfortable. So for some people, you might not find that immediately. Yeah, it'll, it'll come with time too. Thank you, Bernard. Now, you sit as a coroner. I've already talked about various things you do. I've heard a rumour about you uh, coming up north as a door tenant. I am. Um, I am. Oh, well, tell us more about that, which well, means we'll see you more on the northern well, circuit. I've, I've, been, I've been a door tenant now for a number of years at Central Chambers. Which, Chambers, yes. Um, which I absolutely adore. It's, it's. I hope I'm going to join the northern circuit as well, because you're allowed to join more. Yes. I've done a number yes. of cases in the north. Um, oh, have you? I've yeah. not seen oh, you. Yeah, I know. I've I've done a number of cases up there, and it's it's wonderful. It's a very different a very different style and pace of life compared to London, and it's a very nice change because you're with a group of people who know each other very well. I, Manchester is an amazing city, which I absolutely adore. So it's it's yeah, it's great. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to seeing you at court. Of course, it's where I practice um, in the main, so which is really great. And what about the bench? And what about, you know, you're already on the bench because you're a coroner. Um, but might the day come where you just sit on the bench as, as uh, Judge Richmond? Do you know what? I've, I'm very lucky because I have a, a very diverse range of things I do that I'm allowed to do. I'm a recorder, I'm a coroner, I sit in the Isle of Man, I teach. And that's all lovely. But ultimately, the thing that makes me happiest is standing up in the courtroom and presenting. And I think judges, to be good judges, need to have decided that they've done enough of that. And the truth is, I've still got things I want to do. Um, I think I'm one of those people who's going to be the, the player running around the pitch for the pub team when they're 80, rather than the person who wants to go and be the referee. So yeah, I don't I don't see myself as being a, a full time judge. Well, um, I hope that uh, that continues so that so many of us can learn um, some more from you, um, Bernard. One last question, really. Uh, I've met your beloved um, who worked in the Middle Temple for some years, and I just wondered about inspiration and and uh, you know any holidays you've got planned, the two of you. I'm terrible. I don't do holidays. I'm absolutely awful. Really. <laughs> I'm absolutely dreadful. I'm not I'm not the sort of person that you would use as a as an example of how to have a work life balance, really. I think I'm the person that you put up and say, Don't behave like he behaves. And there's a serious point there, actually, which is that I was so fixated with my career that very often I turned down the chance to do things that would have been fun. And then later on in my career, I did do them. I've been abroad many times teaching. I go to the Caribbean most years teaching, which I love. And you, you, I think you have to remember that you're, you're working so that you can enjoy life, not so that you can put life to one side. 
So I think that's a lesson I've learned. I think people need to, to remember that. A huge thank you to Bernard Richmond QC for talking law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. What a great interview. Please do catch up with our previous episodes where you can hear my conversation and interviews with guests such as former High Court judge Dame Laura Cox and immigration specialist Gary McKindo from Latitude Law. If you've enjoyed the podcast, do share Talking Law with your friends or colleagues and please do subscribe. You can also enjoy our other podcast series, the Law and Guidance Podcast. You can find me and follow me on Twitter at SallyPenny1 or search for SallyPenny on LinkedIn. And finally, don't forget the extensive resources for anyone working within the law are available at womeninthelawuk.com. Thank you to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blades at What Goes On Media. Bye for now. Thank you.